We've had a very wonderful week this week. Those of you that have been here, like your pastor said, I was blown away on the first morning at 6.30, over 300, uh, was it almost 300 people show up? And that is intentionally attacking the day for God uh, to be here at 6.30. But if you've been here this week, you know we've been talking about going deeper, what that looks like. And today I'm going to try to put it all together, sort of put a bow on the box for the week. And I'm going to start with a question that was asked me some time ago. I've, I've been serving the Lord uh, personally for about 49 years. I've been in active ministry for about 46. And in all those years, no one ever asked me this question. What matters most to God? Now, wouldn't you think that'd be the first one right out of the gate? But no one ever asked me that until a couple of years ago, I had done a deeper life conference for us, some folks and, and, uh, we were, uh, had, had closed it down on Sunday sometime and drove home, got up Monday morning and was checking my emails and this email popped up. This young woman had been raised in a parsonage, pastor's home on a Bible college campus as instructor. She really lived in a religious ghetto. I mean, she was just in it all the time from the cradle up. But after that deeper life weekend, she began to think a little bit and she sent me this email and these are her words. She said, I've been asking myself this question, what matters most to God? She said, brother Avery, if you had to compile a list of things that matter most to God, what would be on that list? I want to do the things that matter most to God. She said, if you will send me a list of what matters most, I'm going to commit the rest of my life to focusing on that. That question sprang out of a heart that felt like they'd wasted a little bit of time here, there, and yon, not really being focused. What matters most to God? I don't know why the church doesn't get it. I don't know why it took 40-something years for somebody to ask the question. But I'll tell you who does get it. The business world gets it. They get it. One of my sons, my, he's a CFO, he said, Dad, you need to watch the documentary, Bill Gates' Brain. What a great way to entertain yourself, Bill Gates' Brain. So I did. But uh, what I got out of it, here's a man who changed the whole corporate landscape through a simple computer, simple computer program. He changed the world, how we do business, how we think, talk. How, it's in your home this morning, more than likely. And they asked him the question, how can you accomplish so much? You know, after his retirement, he sold Microsoft and he goes out and takes all this money of his. And so he says, you know, we're going to wipe out uh, malaria. One of the biggest problems in the world, killing more kids than anything else is just uh, dirty water. Mosquito bites. And he said, we're going to tackle that. We're going to wipe this out. And he, and he took on projects. And it's amazing what they did. One of his projects, they almost wiped polio off the face of the earth. But he said, how do you do it? And here's what his response was. He said, you have to decide what really matters. And then do it. He's right. When I was a college president, I have often have administrators that... Uh, 
just couldn't figure out exactly what their job was. You know, what, what, are the, what do you need to devote my, most of my time to? And I would bring them in my office. I'd, I'd draw a little diagram like this and one, two, three, and with a line between it. And I said, look at this pyramid. You see number one up here? That's what really matters to me. That's the vision of this institution. You better make sure this gets done. Number two, you know, if you're really, really good at your job, and get all of that done, drop down to number two, hit a few of those. And if you actually get one and two done, then you're a super employee and you can dabble in number three, but do not do this. Don't get it upside down. Don't go after the things that matter. Don't be chasing rabbits. As C.S. Lewis said, we're, we're chasing mice when we ought to be chasing lions. You remember the little cat that went to London to see the queen? We got back home, someone said, Pussycat, Pussycat, where have you been? He said, I've been to London to see the queen. He said, oh, Pussycat, Pussycat, what saw you there? Oh, I saw a mouse run under her chair. In the presence of the queen, he's chasing mice. That's so often what we do. We miss the big stuff and we do the Little stuff, and some reasons it's just so much easier to do that. We're like the farmer. Sometimes the church is like the farmer. In positive ways, but this is a negative way. Good old guy, happy-go-lucky, married a woman. And she tried to convince him for years. He just wasn't getting it. He didn't know how to truly love and show her how much he loved her. But he was a good old guy, provided for her. He said, you need counseling. So finally, he capitulated and went down and had a lot of counseling. At the end of the counseling session, the counselor said, just almost in desperation, he said, sir, you don't get it. You just don't get it, do you? He's sitting there taking it in. And finally, the counselor said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to show you what your wife needs. He gets up from behind his desk, walks around to where the farmer's wife is sitting. He reaches under her arms, pulls her to her feet, bends her over, and gives her the most passionate kiss you could ever imagine. Her eyes are just sparkling when he finishes. He turns to the farmer and he said, now, you see what I'm talking about? This is what she needs. Oh, yeah. I'll bring her by twice a week. Don't believe he got it, do you? <laughs> we sit here Sunday after Sunday. You listen to one of the greatest preachers around. Saturate yourself in the word and, and then walk out of here and turn the pyramid upside down. You don't get it. Well, how do we get it? What, what matters most to God? What do you think? Well, to ponder that question, I, I didn't answer that lightly or glibly. It took me actually a couple of weeks before I, re, I got back to her. I said, this is going to take some time. I wanted to give it some serious thought for my own life and for her. And so I started in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a sermon. Jesus actually gave the core values of the kingdom of God. This is what matters in the kingdom. This isn't some futuristic, aspirational list of things that, well, maybe you might get around to someday. No, this is the very heart of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And right at the heart of that message 
is 633, it said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Actually, a better interpretation of that phrase, seek first the kingdom, would be this. Make is a matter of first importance. Okay? Hang on to that. And then I move on a little further. I walk on through the Gospels. I want to kind of see what Jesus did out on the, the dusty streets of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And I end up at Lazarus' house. Martha's in the kitchen preparing a meal. Lazarus is sitting in the by Jesus and the living room is packed. The windows, everybody is peeking in. He's teaching. Everybody wants to hear him. And right at his feet, just right at his feet is Mary. And she's taking it all in. And Martha's doing all this heavy lifting by herself out in the kitchen. And she's out there and you can just see the steam rising, not in the pot, but in Martha. And she's working and doing it all by herself. And nobody cares. They just leave me to do this. And finally, she just explodes. And she marches into the room where Jesus is and interrupts his lesson. And says, good master, I'm out there doing all of this alone. You tell Mary to get up and come out and help me. And Jesus just very calmly says, Martha, you're troubled about a lot of stuff. But Mary... She's chosen the one essential thing. Hang on to that. I went, I left there and I made my way down to the whole city. And a day or two later, Jesus was teaching in the temple. He came out on the southern steps and was talking, teaching to the people. And off in the distance, there was this really sharp Harvard law grad, the equal of that. He knew the law, brilliant young lawyer. And when Jesus had finished and was ready to walk away, he comes scurrying up in respectful tones. He said, oh, good master, can you tell me what the greatest commandment is? And Jesus said, why? Sure. He said, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's it. That's the greatest commandment there is. And he said, but the second is like to the first, or basically he's saying they really go together like this. And he said, that's to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on to say, it's not on the screen, but he went on to say, on these two things hang all the law. That's the first five books, the Torah, the first five. And the prophets, that's everything else. He's basically saying, on these two commandments hang the entire revelation we call the Old Testament. He said, it's all summed up in this. Wow. So I didn't stop. I said, you know, let's go to the theologian of the New Testament. That's Paul. Paul's giving his personal testimony. He said, man, I was a Pharisee of all the Pharisees. I was far above those my own age. I was a, of the tribe of... Benjamin, the stock of, tri, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, as touching the law blameless. Man, what a pedigree. He said, but I counted all that stuff as nothing, as garbage, that I may win Christ or know Christ. And to the Galatian church who started out in the spirit, but you know, they thought, ah, let, you know, let, let's go back to search. Let's pick up a few new moon Sabbath days. That's, and Paul said to them, the only thing that counts 
before that verse is that it's, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision. He said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So put all that together. Almost like the ingredients in a big cake. You put it all together. You mix it up. What surfaces? What comes out of that? What formula? What recipe? What statement? Well, I think a trilogy of things come out of that. They're one, but they're three. What really matters to God? Number one, knowing him rightly. Number two, loving him totally. And number three, loving others selflessly. Now, let's take a step back and break that down. What, what, is that, what does it mean to know God rightly? You heard a bit of this if you were here Monday. To know God rightly involves three things. It means I get the right information into my head about God. I'm convinced one of the, 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 the most common signs of an unhealthy Christian is they have a skewed understanding of God in their head. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, the most important thing you th about you is what you think when you think about God. And he's right. The most important thing about us are those images, that narrative, that picture of God we have in our head. It's the default mode of our spiritual computer. Everything we do spiritually rises and falls around that view. The level of joy we have, the level of service we commit, the amount of love we experience all rises and falls around getting this right. William Temple said it like this. He said, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you become to yourself and everybody else around you. But if it's right, the bigger blessing you can become to yourself and all of those around you. Getting it right. But secondly, it's, it's not just information, which is crucial. It's important. Knowledge is important. But it's also experiencing that knowledge. Letting that knowledge trickle down into our heart. The head and the heart need not disagree. They can merge and marry perfectly. And, the, as, and we, we must have that experiential moment. If you're a married couple in here, everybody fell in love, you courted. But somewhere, there was this moment when I experienced the marriage. It happened. And I moved from unmarried to married. And the truth is, Jesus coined the phrase of what it means to be born again. There comes a point we must know him, experience what it means to be changed inwardly by God's grace through faith. Our oldest son, Josh, our boys, both of our boys, they were born in a parsonage, grew up hearing all about the Lord, they traveled the world on mission fields, seeing and witnessing the kingdom in action. Then they were at the college with us, a Bible college, where they were literally, a, they, were, <laughs> they, were, they were living in a religious ghetto all around them. And, of course, we prayed with our boys lots of times, and they'd sought the Lord. And, of course, our boys are a Christian. Of course they are. But one Sunday night, Josh came home, and I could tell by the way the door slammed and the feet coming on the, the foyer who it was. I said, there's Josh. And you, Ruth and I were just about ready to go upstairs, but we heard him coming, so we waited. He comes into the kitchen where we were standing, and with this beaming smile on his face, he said, Dad, I got something to tell you. 
I said, sure, what is it? He said, Dad, I got saved tonight. Now, I thought, what are they, what are they doing? What have they done to my son? I, that ought to be, everybody ought to be rejoicing. But I thought, I got saved tonight. And so I tried to cover up any shock. And I said, well, son, that's wonderful. Tell me about it. And he did. Tell me about what happened. And uh, well, we just rejoiced together, thank God together, gave him a big hug and went off to bed and I went to sleep perplexed. For years, our boys, we, we bought them Bibles, we bought them things to use and Jonathan was as diligent as the sun rising in the morning to have those devotions, to read his Bible, to do this. Josh, on the other hand, I bought him a big study Bible and got old enough to handle it and Oh, Dad, that's great. Thank you. That'll really help me. On the nightstand. I said, well, that didn't work. Let's get another translation. A little something easier. So I bought another one. I said, here, buddy, this is much easier. It's got some... Oh, Dad, that's going to help me a lot. He needs a devotional book. That's what he needs. So I get this devotions for teens or college teens or something. And I said, this will help explain some stuff. Oh, dad, that's great. That's going to be a blessing. And dust just starts gathering. And I think, what in the world? Well, maybe he's just a kid. I don't know. The next morning after he came in on Sunday night, he said he'd gotten saved. The next morning he came down. I, was, I get up early. I was down getting, having breakfast, getting ready to go to the, my office. He comes down with his that big old study Bible wide open. And here he comes with his finger planted in the, he said, Dad, you ever seen this verse? <laughs> and we talked about it. Thursday morning he got up, came down for breakfast. He had C.S. Lewis's book, Four Loves. He said, Dad, did you know that in the Greek there are four Greek words for love? And this one means this one, and this one means this one, and this one means this one, and this one means this one. Do you know that, Dad? Yeah, I believe I heard that before. <laughs> no. What am I telling you that for? I'm telling you all these years, I've been trying to lead that horse to the water to drink, and he wasn't drinking. All of a sudden, something happened in him. The Bible calls it resurrection life comes into our life. And we are literally raised. You are dead in trespasses and sins and you are raised to newness of life. And you know what evidences of that life are? Well, there's an easy way to find out. Did you know that Jesus only raised three people from the dead? You know, the king of heaven, the Lord of the world, the one who, he only raised three people from the dead. You know who the first one was? Jairus is, yeah, the girl, the young daughter. You know who the second one was? The widow of Nain, son. You know who the third one was? Lazarus. When he raised the little girl from the dead, what was the first thing he said to her parents? He said, give her something to eat, she's hungry. The widow of Nain's son, when they stopped the funeral procession and he reached up and raised that boy from the dead, the Bible says, first thing he did, the boy spoke. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, called him out, Lazarus comes bumbling out. Jesus said, get those graves off of him, loose him, and let him go. 
there are three indicators of resurrection life. Number one, spiritual appetite. You're hungry for the word. If you're one of those that says, ah, that, that's a dry old dusty book. I don't want to hear it. We may need to duck you again, put you back under. Because people with resurrection life, new life, they have an appetite. People who have resurrection life, it just, life, it just kind of gets out. They want, they want to tell somebody about it. They want, they, want, they want to talk. Man, something really happened to me. And people who have this kind of life are free from the bondage of that self-centered sinfulness. God can set them free. Loose him, let him go. It's important that you know him experientially. It's also important that you know him relationally. How many of you wives would like to be married to a husband who was completely mechanical? I don't mean he turns riches, uh, wrenches. I mean, he's just mechanical. It is Valentine's Day. I am a good husband. Here are your flowers. I will now kiss you on the cheek. And he checks out. Is that it? Is that, would you, is that, all, all in favor, say aye. No takers. I didn't think so. No. Knowing God is relational. It's knowing him. That word know, gnosko, means intimacy, knowledge. It's a communion. It's a Christ living in you sort of a thing. It's walking with him, talking with him, doing life together with him. That's what it means to know God rightly. And if you just get one of these and miss the others, this is the balance, at least as the Bible teaches us. But not only knowing God rightly, joined to that is loving God totally. And these are, these are, these are kissing cousins. They're just next to each other. But how in the world do I know if I love God totally? Some people think loving God Loving God just means some sort of emotion, some sort of a romantic sensation that just goes through me and I have chill bumps all over me and I'm just, ooh. No, it has nothing to do with the feeling. Agape love has nothing to do with feeling. It has everything to do with behavior. It's how I respond to God. That's how I show my love. It means to place great value on God. Jesus said in one of his parables, he said there was a guy that peddled in pearls. And he had a whole bunch of pearls, but boy, he found a field with a massive pearl. And he sold all those little piddly pearls. And he went and bought that big field with this gigantic pearl, a pearl of great price. He said that's the way the kingdom works. We place great value on the king and on God. It says it means to completely trust him. It means we Commit to him fully. It means we give him our obedience. You know, to say I love God with all of my heart and not obey him, that's a, that's a misnomer. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't get it. To say I love God means to give him my very best. Some of you would... Remember the stories of World War II when MacArthur was chased out of the Philippines and out of the islands and the uh, empire of Japan literally was marching right over, taking over everything. 
It was a kind of a dark day in the Pacific War. But the old war machine cranked up back home and they started producing battleships and, and, and boats and torpedoes. And finally, they, they had manufactured several hundred and here they came. And they led the charge back and began to hop from one island to the next. The next thing you know, they're close enough to get a landing strip. They can drop bombs in Tokyo. They're dropping some bombs in the city. The Japanese generals knew that the end was near unless they did something desperate. So they reached into their military history. They pulled out an old sacred military ritual called Harry Carey or Noble Suicide. And they solicit kamikaze pilots, guys who just go one way. And they start building these planes that just mostly metal and a way to control it, a throttle and enough gas to get there. And that was it because these guys are only going to go one way. But here's the story. The story is they had more volunteers to fly those planes than they could build. When, when, when that's you, you're all in. When you know it's only one way, you're all in. When the Ephesian elders gathered around Paul and said, don't you go down there to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you up. They're going to kill you, Paul. And Paul said, what in the world do you want to sit around here and make me cry for? Why, I'm not only ready to go to Jerusalem, but I'm ready to go and die for the cause of Christ. How in the world do you handle a man who's ready to die? What do you do to him? Nothing. He's all in. Are you all in? Third, it means loving others selflessly. You see, the Christian religion isn't just all about an inward focus. It isn't all about just... uh, making sure the heart's right and making sure this stuff's right. No, 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 no. The way we know that all of this stuff is working right and is done right is it expresses itself to our neighbor. Remember what Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love you, God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You can't separate those two. You've got a broken religion, not a whole one. So it's focusing outward. It's two things. It's living a gospel-shaped life. It means we so live our lives in such a fashion that people literally can read the gospel through us. Moody said, most people will never read the Bible, so you're the only Bible they're ever going to read. What sort of version are they getting? It's living that gospel-shaped life. It's taking the principles of this book with integrity and marching them right into the heart of the worst place, workplace and living as Jesus would live right there. But it's more than that. It's not just a good example. It's actually engaging. And it means doing for others what you would want them to do for you. One of the most powerful moving passages and to me in the new testament when jesus was talking about the end times in chapter 24 matthew and then he goes to give some examples of what real readiness looks like here's what true trusting faith saving faith if you're going to be ready for when when he comes back and he is coming back that's a core doctrine of the church's second coming but the rapture of the church is going to be the rupture of the church. 
Not everybody sitting on one of these pews is ready. You know why I know? Because Jesus said, here are three examples of readiness in that chapter 25. Here's what it looks like to be truly ready. And the last one he gave, the first one had to do with the righteousness of your life. The second one, your labor. But the third one was your love. How much are you loving others? You remember the story of the sheep and the goats? And he said to the, to the, he put the goats on his right hand and he said to them, Oh, blessed of the Lord, I was hungry. You fed me thirsty. You gave me drink. I was naked. You clothed me. I was a stranger. And you took me right into the inner circle of your life. They said, Lord, when did we see you in all those conditions? He said, and as much as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Loving him is proved in how we love others. And how we love others, you just don't love the ones that love you back. You love the marginalized, the ones who have the least capability to love you back. You love your neighbor. What does that look like? Some of you would know the name Hayden Robinson. Most of you probably wouldn't, but that's not important. He happened to be one of the uh, very prominent evangelical in America. He's, he's passed away. Great preacher, great hermeneutics guy. But Hayden was trying to illustrate that story there in Matthew 25, this story, how to love. And he said, uh, I had a dream. And I dreamed I went to heaven and when I got to heaven, I was standing there before the great judge of the universe, and he was going to talk to me. And he said, I know you wasn't supposed to take anything in, but he said, I don't go anywhere, not even to heaven without my daytimer. Now, you don't know what a daytimer is. It's, it's the forerunner of the cell phone outlook and all of that. It was a little paper calendar that people used to keep up with their life. He was notorious for his daytimer, never went anywhere with it, without it. He said, I never go anywhere without my daytime. He said, so I had it right there in my pocket. And he said, the Lord looked down at me and said, Robinson, look in your daytimer and tell me where you were on March the 7th, 1979. He said, oh, Lord, I don't need to look. I know exactly where I was on that day. He said, Lord, that's the day that Newsweek magazine put me on the front cover as one of the top five communicators in the whole evangelical world. And the risen Lord, he said, looked down at me and he said, Robinson, I don't read Newsweek. <laughs> he said, and that's not what I'm talking about. It's not important. He said, what I'm talking about was that was the day you had a full schedule of classes in the morning, full schedule of committees in, a, in the afternoon and a meeting at night. You had a packed day. Couldn't, couldn't waste a minute. And he said, you finished your first seven o'clock class and the kids rushed out as they always do. And he said, you quickly packed up your notes and, and headed off to your next class. And as you started out the door, you caught in the corner of your eye, a young woman sitting on the back seat. She never moved. You hesitated, you turned, you looked. You noticed she was crying. You set your briefcase down, you walked to the back of the room and you sat down by her and you called her name and said, Janet, What's wrong? And said, she turned and looked at you and just burst out into tears. She said, Dr. Robinson, six weeks ago, I lost my only brother to a drug overdose. I'd prayed for him for years. And this morning I got word that my father just dropped dead unexpectedly with a massive heart attack. She said, where's God in all this? 
What's going on, Brother Dr. Roberts? I don't know. I'm so, I'm so confused. I'm so shattered. And he said, Robinson, you sat with her for 45 minutes, mixed the next two classes. You held her hand. You prayed with her. You comforted her. You counseled her. Robinson, that was really me sitting in that class. And I never forgot it. He said, now, Robinson, pull out your day timer again and look at April the 15th, 1983. Oh, Lord, I don't need to look at that. He said, I know what happened on April the 15th, 1983. I was the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I was elected to be the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. And I gave an amazing paper on hermeneutics to all those academics. And he said, the Lord looked at me and said, I didn't show up for that session. It's not what I'm talking about. He said, I'm talking about when you got home that night. It was already dark. Your wife met you at the door and said, Hayden, I just heard today that there's a young couple out in from the Midwest that felt the call of God on their lives. He said they had wonderful jobs and positions. They resigned from it all, sold everything, moved a few of their belongings in. And took all the money they had to get the down payment on an apartment, a little house down the street. I heard they didn't even have any money to eat. Hayden never, when he heard that, he went straight to his office. Pulled out his billfold, emptied it completely. Stuffed it in an envelope, wrote a little note to this couple. Encouraging them to go with God, but he didn't sign it. Stuffed it all together put on his coat, snuck down the street under the cover of darkness, saw their little house, had a mail slot on the front door, walked up, pitched that envelope through, let the door close, and then he banged loud on the door. And he listened until he heard footsteps coming, and then he dashed off into the darkness. He said, Robinson, that was really me behind that door. And I've never, ever forgotten it you know sometimes we trip up thinking we got to win the world million souls for Jesus boy it sounds great but that's not how it works you know how it works one neighbor at a time just one person at a time it's just the kid that is struggling is a single parent home doesn't have a dad his dad was a jerk went off and left him Never been fishing in all his life. He'd love to go fishing with you. He'd love to have some gray-haired old guy sit up beside him and say, son, here's how you do it. And the risen Lord's one day going to tell you, that really was me. That was really me who took fishing. There's some kids out there whose head is spinning. Life has collapsed around them. They need a break, and you're the one that can give it to them. And the risen Lord would say, that was really me. And I never forgot it. That's what it means to love my neighbor as myself. You guys are opening the Grace Center next week. The risen Lord's going to say one of these days, that woman that walked in off the street whose lives was shattered and needs somebody to give her some wise words, he said, really, that was me, Keith. And I never forgot it. All across this congregation, 
Nate, such small things like a old guy that needed a little bit of a medical device and just barely mentions it. And it's shipped to Cincinnati. The risen Lord's going to say, you know, you didn't think that amounted to much in your world, but that was really me. That was really me you did that for. All those little things, cookies, cakes, yard, spending some time reading a book, writing a note, sharing a load, giving them a green handshake to a young couple that's struggling. The risen Lord someday is going to say, that was the work of the kingdom. That was really me. And I never forgot it. And now I'm going to make it up to you. Let's stand. Father, in this room are hundreds of people who can make a difference for the kingdom. Don't let them get paralyzed trying to do the big stuff, but motivate them to do those, all those little things that make such a difference in your kingdom. Help us to know what matters most. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.